0: Magnus Podcast, Episode 6, Aristotle's Rhetoric in St. John's Gospel. For the course of the last few weeks, I've had the honor of... Being out at some of the greatest great books colleges in the United States and taping for this very podcast interviews with prominent faculty. While I was at one of those colleges, probably uh, the college with the most beautiful campus, I gotta say, beautiful Thomas Aquinas College in Santa Paula, California, I was very generously invited uh, to give a little talk to a group of students. And I thought to myself, well, what? Could I possibly speak about to a group of TAC students that would at all be interesting to them? I said, okay, how about Aristotle's rhetoric in St. John's Gospel? Yes, believe it or not, it's there. And I've given variations of this talk in different places, usually picking up on themes like apostolic betrayal and how to respond to some of the confusion in the church today, which is present in this discussion. But this is the first time I've ever given the talk to a group of people, most of whom who had read Aristotle's Rhetoric has made it especially enjoyable for me. And hopefully you'll be able to hear some of the quality of questioning and how impressive the students were at TAC, had a really great time out there with their students and faculty. So without further ado, here is Aristotle's Rhetoric in St. John's Gospel. Raise your hand if you've read Aristotle's Rhetoric. Let's start there. Anybody not read it yet? Okay, raise your hand if you've read St. John's Gospel. Raise your hand if you've ever noticed Aristotle's rhetoric at work in St. John's Gospel. <laughs> <laughs> you want to say how? Um,
1: I think. Well, it's been a little while, but uh, we went over a little bit. It was kind of. It was mostly. Uh, it was mostly Dr. Kelly's part in my tutor. Um, just the uh, the establishment of Christ as. A witness to God, and having to establish himself properly through uh, both his teaching, but also his signs to show kind of who and what he was, to kind of establish basically the ethos of himself. Oh, good. Okay. That when he actually, you know, says certain things, it's not just a man saying them. You can actually see in him some someone more is actually saying those things.
0: Good. Okay, so, you know, the sort of three standard principles of Aristotle's rhetoric. You've probably heard them. Ethos, pathos, logos. Of course, it's no, uh, it's no mistake or it's no coincidence that logos, St. John, uh, gives this powerful Greek word, gives a name to one of the persons of the Blessed Trinity, the logos. And he actually gives another powerful Greek word, the paraclete, to another person of the Blessed Trinity, and so he's the only evangelist to do this. Um, do you know about St. John, who he is, why he wrote, when he wrote? Um, so his gospel was written the last, right? And he's identified as the beloved disciple, the one who's in the bosom of our Lord, the agapetos, the beloved. Um, and he is symbolized, the church symbolizes him as a, this eagle sort of soaring above the others, Right? Why is that? So, where, where does, um, well, you know where Luke's, uh, Luke's gospel begins? With what? Uh, the Annunciation. Yeah, the Annunciation, good. And Matthew's gospel begins with what? Genealogy. And Mark's gospel begins with what? Yeah, the Baptist, right. John's gospel begins with what? The Incarnation. the last gospel. Even before. In the beginning was the Word, even before creation. So so John's gospel begins in the very contemplative life of God. His gospel begins even before the starting point of Genesis, even before the beginning of time, before the beginning of creation. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. Uh, now, Aristotle's rhetoric, um, if, you've, if you've read it, you know, hopefully. What does he say is the most powerful form of rhetoric? Let's go TAC. What's the most powerful form of rhetoric? You should know because you see him floating around on the internet all day long. good job an enthymeme is the most powerful form of rhetoric a meme <laughs> no, i'm serious i mean that's where the word meme comes from what is an enthymeme you know
2: it's like um, an argument based on
0: probability right? uh, yeah yeah oh good or a conclusion right that's great okay good so you guys this is great um uh, so basically an anthememe is a is an incomplete syllogism. Okay, that the reader or the hearer is then left to complete and then know. Okay, and this makes total sense when we think about the way internet memes work. Okay. Why is that? Because let's think of a standard internet meme. All memes have uh, specific names, and I might not know the name of this uh, specific meme, but you know the uh, this meme of this like toddler pumping his fist in victory on the beach. You seen this meme, and you could have many captions. Uh, but let's just invent one. You you could say you see the picture of the toddler pumping his fist on the beach, and the caption might say "Ace the test." Okay, whatever. You don't have tests here, so that doesn't mean anything to you. (laughs) (laughs) He's the test, okay? And you see toddler pumping fist in victory like this. So you have there built in two premises, right? A major premise and a minor premise. Major premise, happy toddler. Minor premise, just ace the test. But then this conclusion that the reader, the seer, the audience is left to deduce. And the conclusion would be what? Yeah, it feels awesome to ace a test. Okay. Now, if I just post it on Facebook tonight, nothing but, it feels awesome to ace a test. Is anybody going to share that? Like it? I mean, you know, <laughs> possibly, depending on the benevolence of my friends. <laughs> uh, but, but probably it's not that powerful. When you just deliver the conclusion, when you spoon feed the conclusion, it doesn't really have a weight, it doesn't really have a shareability, it doesn't really have any memetic character, doesn't have the capacity to go viral, as they say. But this meme does give it the power to go viral, the power to be shareable, the power to really be known. Why is that? Because when you have to figure it out, when you have to uh, deduce and conclude, the conclusion of the premises set forth, it becomes internal in a way that it never could have become internal uh, if you were just told the answer. This is the beauty of the seminar program, the beauty of the great books, is because you are actually knowing it and you are actually communicating it. So it gives a power, a weight behind what is being communicated. Now, John's Gospel, in a way that um, no other Gospel really is, uh, John's Gospel makes thorough use of memes, memes, all over the place. Anybody think of one off the top of your head? So think about the definition of an enthymeme: two, an incomplete syllogism, two premises with a vacant conclusion, or a conclusion with a vacant premise that you are left to deduce. So I'll start with an easy one: uh, John 20, 21. You can look at it. Or you can just listen to me. It's short. Uh, somebody want to read it if you got it open? Go ahead. 2021? 20 yeah. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with me.
1: As the Father has sent me,
0: even so I send you. Good. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Major premise, he sends you. Minor premise, as the Father sent me. Now, you, the reader, you, the hearer, are left to deduce the conclusion of this anthememe. What is the conclusion? The Father sends you. Very good. Mm-hmm. You get it? Everybody follow that? So, in other words, let's break it down to syllogistically A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. A equals C. You got it. So, as the Father sends me, even so I send you. And we deduce, the apostles deduce, "I've been sent by the Father." Uh, John :657.
2: One who feeds on me will have life because of me.
0: Good. Two premises and a conclusion that you can figure out. What is the conclusion? Read it again, please.
2: Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. Life coming from the Father.
0: Good. You you just finished. The, you concluded it, right? So if you if Christ has His life in the Father, okay, and you eat Him, feed on Him, and so have life in Him, then we conclude that in eating Him we have life in in the Father, in the Father. Okay. So do you see the how the enthymemes work in John's Gospel? As you read John's gospel, I would encourage you to identify these, note them. There are dozens and dozens. And every time I read the gospel, I find more. Every time. Okay. And why? Why is enthymeme so important? Because as we said, as Aristotle says, an enthymeme is the most powerful form of rhetoric. So if St. John is trying to communicate to you the gospel, was actually trying to communicate to you the life in Christ, that is, life in the Father. In fact, the most powerful enthymeme, I think, in St. John's Gospel that I've discovered, what I would call a mega enthymeme, that sort of transcends his entire Gospel, we can find uh, the first premise of this enthymeme hidden at the end of the prologue. So if you look at John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. John bore witness to him and cried, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. And from his fullness We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, 18 here is the first premise that we're going to keep in our back pocket. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father is in Kolpos. He has made him known. Okay? I don't want to finish this anthem just yet. That'll be the punchline of this amazing talk. Okay? I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, no, really, I want you to hang on to this premise as the first, as, the, as, as a minor premise in this syllogism. We're going to see if we complete. Okay. Why is John the beloved disciple? Does anybody know? St. Thomas Aquinas uh, asks this question and gives the church a beautiful answer of why, above all others, St. John is called the beloved. Any ideas? He gives three reasons. The first is because of his youth. Okay, so we love things naturally that are young, because things that are young are beautiful. Can you imagine if little children were not beautiful? If they were like ugly gremlins that just pooped and screamed all the time? They wouldn't get taken very uh, good care of, right? I mean, really, they wouldn't. It's like, lucky for them, God made young things beautiful. Because there's beauty in youth. That's why it's awesome to, to, uh, to be here with you. With, uh, you don't probably think of yourselves as young, uh, but it's a beautiful time to be alive. And in 20 years from now, you'd be like, these are the best days of our lives. The second reason that Aquinas says uh, St. John is beloved is because of his purity. Okay. St. John uh, is is intensely pure of spirit, of body, of intention. And the third reason is really a fruit of his purity. You know, the beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Uh, St. John's purity has a fruit that is what Aquinas calls perspicacity. You know what perspicacity is? is a penetrating intelligence into the heart of things, beyond the visible. Okay, so these are the three reasons that John is the beloved disciple. His youth, his, pers- his, youth, his purity, and his perspicacity. Okay, the church right now is in, um, if you haven't noticed, right, a lot of chaos, a lot of turmoil. And whether or not this has historical precedent is not really the the subject of this talk, but you can all identify some of the chaos that the church is in, correct? Okay. And you know that this, um, this chaos actually has its roots um, in the apostolic time itself. Because of the 12 that he chooses, one is a traitor. Okay. One is a traitor, and that is Judas, of course. But as we're going to see here, not only does St. John's perspicacity take him into the heart of the Christian mystery, the heart of Christ, uh, but St. John, in a way that none of the other apostles do, can see Judas when none of the other apostles can. So we're going to dive into this, and we're going to see how St. John Sees Judas. How can Saint John identify Judas when he seems to be, when his nefarious deeds seem to be invisible to the others? Okay. And so, in order to understand this, we're going to, let's look at um, John 6, which I think is the first time that John mentions Judas. And this is the bread of life discourse. You know that. uh, Right before the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus multiplied the loaves. And you know what kind of loaves he he multiplied? Barley loaves. And you know why barley is significant here? Aquinas, and I think Augustine, in his commentary on John, point out the significance of barley loaves. It is, um, and I've never worked with barley or made much bread, but I apparently uh, they say that the... The grain of barley has a nutrient, a germ, that is difficult to extract and surrounded by a thick husk. So there's something nutritive there, but it is, uh, it's difficult to get at. And Augustine and Aquinas, they compare this to the old law. Okay, So the barley loaves sort of signify the old law. Like The good stuff was in it, but you had to work hard to get at it. And then Jesus shows up, and he's been doing all kinds of miracles, as we know. He's got a big following, a crowd, and they're kind of like following him around saying, okay, what's the punchline? And so we'll pick up at John 6, um, 25. Somebody want to read that?
2: When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your silver loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endured eternal life, which the Son of Man will
0: give to you. For on him has God the Father set the seal. Um and it's very interesting here that the the Christ has been anointed, he's been given a mark. Okay, and we could study in the book of Revelation. There is uh, the beast and there is the lamb, and the beast and the lamb are described almost identically. So it'd be very hard uh, for for the average Joe to tell them apart, because we think beast. Okay, you know he's, he's he's bad, mustache twitching, you know villain, horns, and everybody knows you know uh, he's the beast. But if you look at the way Revelation phrases the beast and the lamb, they're both very similar. They both work signs and wonders. They both have multiple heads and marks on the head. They both have mortal wounds. They both uh, work wonders and raise the dead. And they both ask their disciples for worship. And they both give their disciples a mark. So not only does the sun have a mark here that we hear about from uh, John's Gospel, Uh, which is probably the last thing John wrote. Uh, But the beast has a mark also. So there's a demonic parody at work. Uh, Continue, please.
2: Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the word of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven
0: to eat. Good. Uh, what? Uh, what is uh, manna? What is it? What is it? What is
2: it?
0: Yeah, it's a joke. Yeah, it means what is it? Yeah. Uh, Gotcha. Um, uh, But what does this indicate here is that God is going to sustain his people in mystery. Okay? Uh, Please continue.
2: Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It said, Lord, give us this bread all.
0: Good. So Jesus just multiplied the loaves and, and they following him around, he even go so far as to follow him to the other side of the sea. It's a pretty impressive act of faith there. He says, Well, my father's work is your faith. So his father's giving him these sheep. And they say, Well, he, says, he talks about the bread of life. And if he talked to you about the bread of life, you'd say the same thing. Give it, give it to us. We're ready. Like we just ate those barley loaves. Now give us the bread of life, okay? And then uh, at John six thirty five, you can imagine you've seen these uh, scenes in a movie where like there's a party, and then like the awkward guy walk. David Easton walks in the room, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, the record just scratches, you know? And like everybody, and then everybody like stops and looks. This is the record scratching moment in John six thirty five. Okay, what is it? Go ahead. It? Yeah, please. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Oh, okay. So he says, you eat the bread of life. Yeah, let's go. Let's get it. You know? And then he says, I am the bread of life. Why is this a record-scratching moment? Uh, have you ever seen Mel Gibson's old movie, Apocalypto? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Hey, guys, come on in. Let me guess, you're related. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, When we think of uh, apocalypto, what's what's going on in apocalypto? Tons and tons of human sacrifice, uh, cannibalism, spilling of blood. When we think of these things today, we think this is kind of taboo, you know, like we just don't eat people anymore. Uh, Back in this day, of course, you probably know, human sacrifice and cannibalism for ritualistic purposes was actually done everywhere. Everywhere. Except for three cultures. You know which three cultures? did not perform ritualistic human sacrifice and cannibalism? The Jews, the the Greeks, and the Romans. And where is Jesus speaking right now? John tells us in Capernaum, the the perfect cultural crossroads of Jewish, Greek, Roman culture. And he he makes this allusion to okay, you got to eat the bread of life if you want to have life. And then they say, okay, let's do it. And he says, I am the bread of life. And you can understand why this becomes at least the question of scandal. We know they're not scandalized yet because we know they're still listening to him. 36. Can you please uh, continue if you don't mind?
2: When I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last
0: day. Okay, so there's some question, and as you would probably do the same, you would murmur, the Jews are murmuring. 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? It's very interesting when you read this, um, this similar accusation in Matthew's gospel, they say, is this not Jesus, the son of the carpenter, right? Uh, and there's a, there's a brilliant, almost uh, Johannine irony there. Uh, in, in that, if you, if you look at the Greek or the Latin of that passage in Matthew's Gospel, uh, in Latin, is, uh, they say, Quies est filius fabri. Isn't this fabri? Fabrus? You know? What is fabri? You, you know Latin. The maker, yeah. Isn't this Jesus, son of the maker? Uh, same in Greek, architectanos. This is a joke. It's um, jokes on them, yeah. Uh, yes, yes, it is. Uh, and and uh, Jesus answered them, do not murmur among yourselves, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. It's a little clue into that mega enthymeme I pointed out. You can hear the same language. No one has seen the Father, except for the Son who is in the bosom of the Father. So to be taught by God, how does that, what does that look like? God shows up you know, in all his glory in your dorm room tonight and teaches you. What does it mean to be taught by God? John's giving us a hint that you can really pick up on if you understand Aristotle's understanding of entomemes. You get it? OK. 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, Except him who is from God, he has seen the Father. It's going back to the prologue. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give... For the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Now he doubles down here by bringing up drinking of blood. And you know, if you've read Leviticus... What's the deal with drinking of blood? Have you ever had a kosher meal? Why is, what, uh, what's the deal with blood and the way Jews eat their flesh?
2: Must have all the blood
0: drained out. Why does it must have the blood drained out?
1: It's the life life of
0: the Good. The life of the animal is in the blood. And if, if you were to consume the blood of the animal, you would be sharing in its bestial nature. Okay, So bringing up blood here is, is especially perplexing for the Jews. And then John does something remarkable. Our Lord does something remarkable in 654. It's only really apparent in the Greek. Up till this point, John has been using a word for uh, eat. Uh, that is uh, phagete, phagene. Uh, like, uh, it could be general. Like, you, you guys are eating this up, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, okay, I'm not, you're not, like, actually eating this up. That's uh, what the word means. But there's some question. In 654, John changes the Greek word to trogo, trogan, to gnaw, to munch, to crunch, to feed on, as a cow would chew her cud, as a beast eats, eat as a beast eats, He who eats trogain, my flesh, and drinks my blood is eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats trogain, my flesh, and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. He who eats trogain would live because of me. It's another anthem This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate, phaging, and died. He who eats, trogain, this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. That is right in the middle of Jews, Greeks, Romans. Everybody hated what he had to say. because Because there could be absolutely no mistaking his literal meaning of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And it's not that nobody did that. It's that everybody did that, but everybody out in the sticks. Those pagans. Those beatniks. OK? That's not what we do here, Jesus. We are civilized. And indeed, they were. That's why it's such a scandal. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Right, And that's, that's an understatement. You know, if I took out a pocket knife right now and started slicing off my, uh, you know, my flesh and said, hey, you guys know what this talk is really about, right? Uh, you'd probably, you'd be, you'd be scandalized, right? You'd, be, you'd go tell uh, Kubler, what's his name? Kubler? He's not here, is he? Okay. Uh, yeah, you would say, how'd you let this guy talk here? Uh, T-A-C, we are civilized. and He's talking about eating his flesh. Um. Okay, so who can listen to it? It's a hard saying. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe, And who it was that would betray him. Why is John punctuating his bread of life discourse by pointing to Judas? And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now John 6, uh, verse 66. By the way, it is no coincidence of course, John is not writing a chapter and verse in Greek. Uh, he's not, you know, paginating his, his gospel. Uh, but he does the same author in the book of Revelation, says that the mark of the beast is knowable, and it's going to be given on your hand or your forehead. And if any man accepts this mark, he cannot be saved. What's the number? 666. Six, six, six. Here we are in John... Six, uh, chapter six, verse sixty-six. At least the only time in the New Testament that we even have such a chapter and verse. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. So the, they go, they, they reject this. They go back to their former way, this is the way of the beast. Jesus said to the twelve, "Will you also go away?" And Simon Peter answered him, "Sure." Transubstantiation, totally get it, right? Uh, no, he doesn't do that. Uh, he answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Peter doesn't get it. It's, it's a mystery to him. As it might be um, you know, difficult for him. But he says, You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know God, that you are the Holy One of God. That is, that is because you say so. It's faith. Jesus answered them, "Did I not choose you the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And John tells us he ends his bread of life discourse by saying this: He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve was to betray him. I want to say this um, I'm going to make it a, a clear preface to, to my comment here that we're we're going we're gonna to trot into Speculative theology, okay. Just my opinions, uh, and you know, you don't, don't, you don't have to take it as magisterial, okay, or anything I say tonight. But there is uh, John's big on names, right? And it's of course the case that the Baptist and the beloved disciple have the same name, but they also have the same charism. And uh, the charism is a mission. That is, charism is a grace given to one or a few for the good of the many or the whole. And so John the Baptist and John the Evangelist have the same charism, that is, to point to the saving Lamb of God, to point others to him, to see him when nobody else can, but also to hide themselves, to get out of the way. He must decrease, or I must decrease, rather, he must increase. John's big on names. We have three Marys at the foot of the cross. There's Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. Of course, there's probably other women at the cross, but why three Marys? Because you have femininity in its, its threefold splendor, its threefold dimensionality. You have uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the wife of Clopas. You have mother, wife, and he puts Magdalene there. What's Magdalene doing there is this third Mary, the splendor of virginity. Although it's transformed, as Mary is transformed into this, into this uh, splendid virgin, the Mag- Magdalene, uh, this harlot, Magdalene means fortress. She becomes the fortress, the first to behold our Lord intuitively. Okay, and John says in the garden she sees, he changes the word for see to theoria, is Aristotle's word for contemplate. Okay. But Judas, every time you notice, Judas and John's gospel. You'll see he's called uh, Judas, son of Simon. Okay, he's trying to point you, I think, toward the relationship between Judas and Peter. Okay, whose name is Simon? There's a reed blowing in the wind, he's transformed into this rock. But if you notice, pay attention. You know, there's good Peter, there's bad Peter, right? Peter's a screw up, but he finally comes around. How does our Lord in John's Gospel refer to Peter? Always. When he's at his best. Simon, son of John. Now Simon's dad's name, John, okay? Pete 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 Johnson, okay, right? Uh. <laughs> Okay, so that, so I'm not saying that wasn't historically the case, but I am saying we're not allowed to believe in coincidence when we're reading John's gospel. So pay attention to the interplay between Peter and Simon Peter, sort of waffling between Judas, Satan, and almost this uh, disciple in the school of John's love. Now, most of the crowd in John 6 leaves Jesus. They say, OK, adios. I'm out of here. Check, please. No more of that. And Jesus doesn't say to them, oh, only that was only a parable, metaphor, parable. You know, it's Jesus. I, I do parables, right? Come back. I didn't actually mean it. What does he do? He says, "Will you leave me too. Now, what's interesting here is that John brings us back in this moment to Judas. Why? Because Judas left as well, at least in his heart. Judas is scandalized interiorly by the reality of the Eucharist. But what does he do? He sticks around and fakes it. He makes a decision at that moment, which is why this is the first time John's naming him. He makes a decision. He says, I got a a good gig here. People seem to appreciate me. I got an important official role. I get to carry the money purse. So I'm going to fake it to make it. And here we have the archetype of the faithless cleric. Indeed, the archetype of the faithless bishop. One who does not believe, and particularly does not believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, but makes the decision, I can't do much else. I got a driver. I got a cook. I'm here, and I don't have anything else to do. I'm going to pretend. I'm going to pretend. It would have been much better, right, for Judas at this moment to do what? To leave. Sorry, Jesus, and it would have broke our Lord's heart. but it would have been much better for Judas to leave. If we fast forward to the next time John brings up Judas, it's John 12, the anointing at Bethany, and what just happened. Uh, its cause for the anointing of Bethany is that our Lord raised up Lazarus from the dead after being in the dirt for four days. So he said, he's going to smell bad. Don't do that. He raised him from the dead. And we have here uh, John 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot... By the way, what does Iscariot mean? You've seen the movie Sicario? we speak Spanish? Assassin. Assassin. Yeah, dagger man, literally. Okay. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box. He used to take what was put into it. Jesus said, let her alone, let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. I want you to consider how gentle our Lord's rebuke is here. This is, this is uh, the same Jesus that called Peter uh, the Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Uh, for so much is, is, uh, is, you know, inverting the order of the temporal over, over the spiritual. And, and he gives this very gentle, rebuke, so merciful. He gives this merciful rebuke to Judas, soft. Let her alone, let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. Because nobody else says anything. We have to imply from this text that Judas makes this uh, claim. as 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 Magdalene is anointing our Lord's feet. This act of uh, beautiful adoration. And Judas says, shouldn't shouldn't this be sold and given to the poor? By the way, have you heard that objection in contemporary church dialogue? Have you seen the division in your parishes between the adoration Catholics and the social justice Catholics? And none of the other 10 apostles speak up. John doesn't speak up there were probably a good amount of apostles in that circle watching our Lord being adored and hearing Judas's objection that said to themselves, yeah, yeah, he's got a point there, right? This is some expensive nard. The irony is rich here because uh, do you know what Bethany means? No, that's Bethlehem. Close though. Ideas? It, it means, huh? House of? Uh uh-huh. uh. Uh-uh. Poor. Poor town. He's in poor town, being adored by the poor. And Judas is asking, why aren't we selling this and giving it to the poor? And as students of St. Thomas Aquinas, I expect at least one of you is going to be able to tell how we could know that Judas is lying just by hearing this statement. So read Judas' objection again. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? How do we know Judas is lying? You may want to take a guess. Have you guys read Karamazov yet? Okay. How do we know Judas is lying? Would you say that the the okay, maybe, yeah. What else? There's, a, there's an epistemological way. It's Close, getting there, maybe. Can you love anything in the abstract? No. You know in the abstract. Okay, I can know uh, those rafters and I don't get uh, wood splinters in my brain matter when I do it. I've got to abstract the form to get it in here spiritually. That's knowledge. Knowledge happens in the abstract. But love only happens in the particular. I cannot desire water as such. I want this water. Delicious. So when Judas says, What about the poor? Remember, Judas is not saying, Hey guys, there's the beggar outside at our doorstep. Can we bring him in for dinner? He's not talking about a particular poor person, he's talking about the poor. I mentioned Karamazov because there's a line about uh, loving all mankind, but you hate the jackass next to you on the train or something, right? I love all mankind, but when I listen to you chew at lunchtime, you know. In other words, you can't love all mankind, you can't love anything in the abstract. And that's Judas' pretense here. He's concerned for the poor. And John says, this he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. So he really wants the money. OK? Questions so far? OK. Yes? not the way John uh,
2: says it to make it sound like he could love the poor in the abstract?
0: How so? Say more.
2: He says not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief.
0: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. He says says not because he cared for the poor, like as in he doesn't care for the poor. Yeah. As in he he could have said, as in he could have cared for the poor. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd think more about it. It's good. Um, Let's uh, go to John... Uh, where do we want to go here? Let's, let's take a quick stop at uh, John 16. I just want to point something out for you. John 16, 25. That wouldn't happen at Wyoming Catholic College. I was out there last week. No cell phone policy. They're serious. They will fine you if they see you with a cell phone. Walking around in town. No joke, they're dead serious. But they got you guys beat on booze. You can drink on campus at uh, <laughs> at Wyoming Catholic. <laughs> um, actually, let's—I I, I, don't want to keep you here for that long. Uh, but let's just go to John thirteen twenty one. I want you to uh, bring to the forefront of your memory the, uh, that end of the prologue, that first, the first premise of the syllogism. By the way, let's start at uh, 1312. When he washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And by the way, here, I am is uh, the Tetragrammaton, right? Yahweh. Okay, I am. He's identifying himself by the name of God. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Or is he who is sent greater than he who sent him? He who is sent, literally, apostle. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do do them. I am not speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I tell you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am again. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone uh, whom I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So we see now, and you'll see it if you read all through the end of uh, uh, the gospel, here on out, really, John begins completing his entomemes. That is, that is being more and more direct. That was a com- a complete, it's not an it was complete, just a syllogism. 21, when Jesus had thus spoken, he was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Okay, so that's an understatement again, right? You're in a room, there's 12 of you in a room, you've been following our Lord around this whole time, you've watched him raise the dead, Uh, You've watched him wash your feet, and now he drops this bombshell in the room, and he says, "Okay," he says, "Clearly, one of you in this room will betray me. What would you do?" The text says, "Right." uh, They looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, as if it could be, "Ah, you, yeah, you, yeah." Now, what, what would happen in this room? it'd be mimetic chaos, right? They'd be pointing fingers, ah, it's not me, it's not me, it's probably, you know, shifty-eyed Bartholomew over there. Look at him, just sitting there all quiet. Uh, Who is it, you know? um, Now, one of his disciples, so there's chaos in the room, and then 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was lying What is your translation here? Mine says close to the breast. This is terrible. Close to the breast? Oh, good. And so you're reading a Vulgate? Good. And Sinegesu, the Greek is in kopos. In the bosom. Maybe that should flash back to the prologue this mega enthymeme. Good. One of his disciples in Jesus' love was lying in the bosom of Jesus. So Simon Peter beckoned him and said, tell us who it is of whom he speaks. So lying thus close to the breast of Jesus, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Now remember, this all happens in secret. In other words, we read this, we hear it at Mass, and we think Peter gets up, on a table and says you there tell us of whom he speaks right and no there's chaos in the room there's finger pointing there's denial i'm not it's not me not me it's probably you and i and then peter gets a bright idea peter sometimes gets a bright idea in the gospels right and peter stops and looks over and sees saint john Well, everybody else is in pandemonium. St. John is in adoration. And Peter gets this bright idea. He says, hey, hey. And John's probably like, dude, let me adore here. Like, don't get me caught up in this. But John uh, is really obedient to Peter's principality. John probably doesn't want to answer this question. John probably doesn't want to, but he does. He obeys Peter. Peter says, hey, who is it? (laughs) Peter beckoned to him. like, hey, get his attention. Tell us who it is, whom he speaks. So lying thus, close to the breast of Jesus, he said to him, as he obeys Peter, He said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered him, and remember Jesus answering John in secret. It is he to whom I shall give the morsel when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon. Then after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money box, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out and it was night. So for Judas, for everybody else, this act of, um, well, Eucharist, giving the bread, is an act of communion. For Judas, it's an act of expulsion. And it's done in secret. It's communicated to John in secret. Now, if you're John and you hear that, what do you want to do? Yeah, Pete, Peter, it's, it's him. It's him. What would have happened? They
2: would have stopped
0: him. Stopped him is an understatement. Luke tells us that these guys were armed, it would have been a Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> and there's a part of us that wants that to happen. Peter would have killed him dead where he stood in a heartbeat. But John knows something. Uh, That's important to remember in these crazy days in the church. He knows that the blood that must be shed is not that of the betrayer. The blood that is going to be shed that will then break all previous mimetic cycle, all previous ritual sacrifice, the last blood to be shed will be that of the lamb. And because John is rooted here in adoration he will not be scandalized by that blood when it comes. In fact, he will follow our Lord to his cross when even Peter flees in horror. Judas is scandalized by by the cross because it's not bloody enough. He wants wants all the Romans to be bloody. He wants to overthrow the temporal oppression of the Jews. That's... That's what the, uh, the uh, Iscariots were all about. Whereas Judas is scandalized by the cross being not bloody enough, Peter is scandalized by the cross being too bloody. Only John is able to adore our Lord in the hour, in his hour, which is for John a very liturgical statement, his hour is the Mass. He's able to adore our Lord through his own passion and so witness to it. Uh, There is a a beautiful double meaning that we need to point out here. Every apostle in this upper room at this moment is sent forth, sent out. Of course, Judas is sent out, cast out into the darkness. But every apostle is given the same mission, Um, Do you know what the word tradition, what this means, where this comes from? Yeah, hand it it on, literally. Uh, Tradere is the infinitive. Okay, Greek, uh, paradidoni. As every apostle in this room is given commission to hand on the truth. But this word, both in Greek and Latin has a very unusual double meaning. You know. Good. To hand on, tradere, the same exact word, to hand over. To hand on, to hand over. All of the apostles are going to hand on our Lord. One of the apostles is going to hand him over. What's the difference What's the difference? That's a question. That's a question that should be somewhat introspective for us because it's we have the capacity to do it. We have the capacity to do it um, as we teach, as we preach, as we evangelize. Who are we in this for? Okay. Uh, What's the difference is that when you when you hand something on, you're doing it for the good of the recipient. When you hand it over, the same exact material transaction is taking place, We're actually doing it for your good, which will lead to your demise. How many of you finished this, the enthymeme? This mega enthymeme. So you go back to the prologue. No one has seen God except for the Son, the only begotten Son, who is in kopos, who is in his bosom. Where is John at this moment? Where is John in our Lord's saving hour? He's in Kolpos. He's in our Lord's bosom. So complete the intime. Where is John in this moment? He's in the bosom of the Father. And so can make him known. Read the prologue. He's in the bosom of the Father, and so can make him known. The entire apostolic charism, if it is going to be effective, if it is going to be fruitful, must be rooted in adoration. Everything you will do as teachers must be rooted in adoration. And I use teaching there broadly in the St. Augustine sense. Uh, to speak is to teach. Okay, because why? You're communicating the real. These little words, we are communicating the word. And if that's not rooted in adoration, if that's not rooted in love, you're a gong. And you can decide to fake it, to make it, as Judas does in John 6. You can decide to fake it, be the gong. But how does that work out? You're cast out. Because you're not rooted. You're not rooted. Uh, You're not sharing the roots of this tree of life that is the cross of Jesus. Jesus. Luke has a very interesting way of uh, describing this, and he points to it um, in his prodigal son narrative. We won't read it. I'll just tell you when the when the son returns home, okay? The son returns home, and the father runs out to meet him. The gospel says that the, the father is moved. Um, his great compassion, I think is the English. You can look it up. But in Greek, the word there Luke uses is splachna. That is, the father, the father is moved in the guts. It's Paul's same word when he says, put on, uh, put on the bowels of Christ. It's a funny way of speaking, but splachna, same thing. The only other time Luke uses this word in this way, speaking of the movement of uh, the father's uh, compassion to, from from the guts from the depths. Any ideas? So, when he's moved with pity on them before. Yeah, I'd have to check. I don't think John uses that, but I have to check. It could be. I know. I know the other time that Luke uses it is when he's talking about Judas's death in Acts. Judas is uh, he, his guts fall out, right? You know, he, he hangs himself, his guts fall out. It's a very graphic way of speaking. But what's, what's, what's he telling us here is that everything Judas is, this anti-charism of the traitor, is a demonic parody of the Father's mercy. And that's why it's always cloaked, especially in the church today, with what? Care for the poor, compassion. It's a demonic parody of the Father's mercy. And we know it's such because it's not rooted in adoration. And we know that, uh, like the beloved disciple whose charism the church so desperately needs to adopt today, in other words, what do you do when you see all this crazy stuff? When you see, uh, you know, take it from any level you want. Heresy preached at the pulpit, scandal. When you see Judas in action throughout the church, it echoes. When you see betrayal, what's your response? You want to have this mimetic response. You want to, you want to go, you want to go nuts at like Peter would have at the Last Supper. You want to slay some heretics. Aquinas says it's just to slay some heretics. He does. Uh, you want to write a letter to your chancellor? You want to hammer away at the blogosphere? What does John tell us is the right response to betrayal? Adoration. Adoration. Um, but there is, if I could, you guys are okay? A couple more minutes? Mm-hmm. So there is this very curious scene at the end of John's Gospel. It's the last time Jesus appears as resurrected. This is John 21. What's interesting here about John 21 is when is John writing this? The end of his life life is the last thing he wrote, which means what has happened to all these people he's listing here in this litany.
2: They've all, been
0: They've all been martyred. And John's getting the last word. It's said that Luke, uh, you know, obviously Luke has the infancy narrative. Where would, he, where would Luke have gotten his information? And who was Mary living with? John. So Luke goes and interviews John firsthand. And Luke is not a Jew. He's writing as a journalist, as a historian. Okay. Okay. And he's doing his research in the house of Saint John. He's receiving communion by the hands of Saint John with Our Lady, and it's like John says. This is uh, Marie Dominique Philippe uh, wrote about this. So it is. I think it's speculation, but it's, it's not my speculation. But I like it. He says uh, it's as if. St. John waited for Luke's third third gospel to be written, published, and he read it. He read it, and he decided that there was more to be told. So John's writing as a bishop, not only in the early church, like he's clearing up very important, concrete, theological, doctrinal issues, such as the real presence, such as the divinity of our Lord. But John's really writing for a bishop of the church universal throughout space and time. And that's why he can write the book of Revelation. And he can tell us what's going to happen at the end. And if he can tell us what's going to happen at the end, you better believe he can tell us what's going to happen now. You better believe that his perspicacity into our Lord's heart includes the church throughout space and time. And John could have rewritten the whole story right here. He's the last guy living. He's the last guy standing. He could have made himself Peter. He doesn't. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way: Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter says to them, said to them, "I am going fishing." <laughs> they, they, Peter's so funny. <laughs> so after all that, hey, let's go fishing." Um, They said to him, we will go with you. And John uh, very likely was not a fisherman. John was probably a temple elite, like a Sadducee in training. That's why he almost certainly would have read Aristotle, would have read the Greeks. He's probably vacationing on the beach when Jesus walks up to these fishermen. (laughs) He's studying with St. John the Baptist. But anyway, Simon Peter, I'm going fishing And they said to him, we will go with you. And John's probably like, oh, come on, seriously. All right, wherever you go, Peter. Uh, They went out and got into the boat. And that night, they caught nothing. Surprise. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. When you're fishing for a long time and you haven't caught anything, what's the most annoying question you can be asked? Hey, you caught anything? (laughs) Right, and uh, they answered him very curtly, uh, "No." <laughs> and then, what's the second most annoying question you could be asked when you're fishing and not catching anything? Well, what are you using for bait? Right? And you're like getting fishing advice from this person they don't recognize. He says to him, "Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some." <laughs> So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. That disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work and sprang into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. They were not far off from the land, about 100 yards off. John's account here of the last time Jesus appears to them is thoroughly eschatological. He's giving us an image of the church in the last days. The church is the boat. Peter's the captain. And Peter becomes, once again, so distracted by the worldly things. This case is Fish. Peter is Peter's, uh, smelling a little bit too much like the fish. He's happy. He's got all the fish. And it's like in a, a scene in the movie when, you know, you're like talking about somebody behind their back, and they're actually right behind you. And somebody, when your friends go, hey, hey. What happens here is that Peter's worried about his fish, and John says to Peter, John finally speaks up. John, in his silence of adoration... Is finally broken. And he finally gets Peter's attention and he finally directs Peter prayerfully, lovingly. And John says, Peter, turn around. It is the Lord. And Peter heard it was the Lord. He said, Oh, shoot, it's the Lord. Uh, He put on his clothes for he stripped for work and he sprained the sea. Who? who uh, puts on their clothes before jumping into the ocean? Isn't that a strange thing? What do we have here is, is I believe, uh, a redonning of Peter's papal regalia, a, re, a, a return to an understanding of his office that leads to jumping into the water Which we could read as an image for Peter's death, Peter's martyrdom. In love. He jumps in the water. And then we read, But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far off land, about a hundred yards off. We don't know what kind of martyrdom this could signify. Uh, But Peter just jumps in. He doesn't try to walk on the water to get to the beach (laughs) like he could do that, maybe. Um, He just jumps in with all his clothes on. And then we read that the boat follows Peter. How does the boat get to the beach? Of course, Christ is drawing it to himself this whole time. But practically, what would have happened? Who docks the boat? Not Peter, maybe, we don't know. But somebody's like, hey, our captain's gone. Like, <laughs> hold my beer, okay? <laughs> I'll get this boat. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish lying on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad aboard, and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. Now Peter's back on the boat. 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. John tells us the net was not torn. John also tells us in our Lord's crucifixion um, that no bones were broken. If you've seen the other Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ... And if you've read the uh, many mystics' account of the crucifixion, we learn that our Lord's shoulder was dislocated. Pop. And when you see a shoulder dislocated, what are you tempted to think? He just broke something. It says, to the visible eye, the, the bones are broken, and the nets are going to be torn. And the bones and the nets... Signify what? The doctrinal integrity of the Catholic Church, the the, the structural integrity of Christ's body. And to the eyes, it looks like shoot, that bone just broke. That net should be torn. And John tells us, don't worry, the bones are not broken, the net is not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, why does John even say none of them dared to ask, who are you? It's clearly he's not appearing to them as Jesus. He's appearing to them uh, in a veiled manner. He's appearing to them Eucharistically in one sense. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. John's giving a Eucharistic illusion. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So there's bread and there's fish. There's this bread uh, through which uh, the apostles and so the church had consumed Christ in his divine nature, but according to their own bestial nature, now Christ is consuming them in breakfast as fish. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, here we go, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to them, feed my lambs. And a second time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you fastened your own belt, walked where you would. But when you were old, you stretch out your hands. And another will fasten your belt for you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved. So after this whole conversation, you can imagine John, like, eavesdropping. That's how he's able to tell us about it. Walking right behind them, who had lain close to the breast, not uh, close to, in the breast, in the bosom, at the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, what about this man? What about this guy? You can imagine, right, Peter signifying the higher offices of the church, the princes of the church, the authority, and John, of course, signifies the faithful, the beloved. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. This saying spread abroad among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if it is, uh, if it is my will that you that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This disciple who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. But there are many other things which Jesus did. Every one of them, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Why is it the world that could not contain the books that could, uh, it could not be contained in all the books that would be written? Is it because you could have written, you know, Jesus on this Wednesday after the Sabbath uh, had this for breakfast and this for lunch, and then he went on a walk. And Is it because there's like an infinite amount of details omitted in Jesus' life? Why can't all the books uh, in the world not contain all that Jesus did?
2: Because they cannot contain the Word as the Word and all that he did.
0: No doubt about it. And also, I think in a very real sense, because... He's still doing it. He's still doing it. And so uh, this charism of the beloved disciple, the agapetos, the, the beloved, uh, is, is now yours. Is now yours. I mean, not now as in like you just heard this talk, so now it's yours. Like now in the church's history, it's time for you to accept this. Because it's what the church needs more than anything else. Christ is on the cross and he thirsts. What is he thirsting for? He thirsts for our adoration. If we can root ourselves in that adoration, we can make him known. You can see that because you know Aristotle's enthymemes, and you see John's enthymemes. Any questions?
2: Um, this is kind of more of a comment than a question, but it occurred to me that with enthymemes, you never have unqualified knowledge, but you're always making like a leap of faith to the conclusion every time.
0: That's beautiful. Say more. With memes, you never have unqualified knowledge. You're always having to make a leap of faith to the conclusion. Yeah, because of a
2: true syllogism, you have unqualified
0: knowledge. That's right. A true syllogism is provable. Yeah. An enthymeme is always conveyed in mystery. Yeah. Is it dialectical syllogism,
1: or is, that different? Uh, is it different? Huh? Uh, the dialectic syllogism is different from... The enthymeme is based in not direct, not necessarily direct causation, but causation in terms of putting each next to each other, so that the listener can see where the speaker is directing their mind. Whereas for a dialectic syllogism, you're starting first with an opinion and showing the logical uh, conclusion that comes forth from putting one premise after another from an opinion so that you can see whether or not the opinion
0: is true. I love TAC. <laughs> okay, and if we want to uh, stick around and uh, and hang out and talk, we can do that. But let's close the prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we place ourselves uh, before you. We ask you to unite us in the simplicity of your love and teach us to be adorers of your pierced heart in your bosom. Even as your son, John, son of the Father, son of Our Lady, adored you, we consecrate everything we are, all of our work at the college, all of our studies, everything to the immaculate heart of our mother, as we pray together, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John, our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, St. Thomas Aquinas, all ye holy guardian angels, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For more, visit magnusinstitute.org. That's M-A-G-N-U-S institute.org. Copyright, Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.